Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. And just a warning, this episode contains strong content, because history does sometimes. Hey, Fallon. Hey, Leah. Well, we did it. We made it to our last episode of the season. Congratulations to us, 24 episodes exploring many facets of this country, all recorded in our closets. Yes, and I'm sure many people were listening in their closets or cars or wherever people are hiding right now from their family members or just life as it is right now. This is a great way to start it off. Anyway, but for what it's worth, all your hiding places are valid to all our listeners. I want them to know that. And I'm just really, truly grateful for all the people who tuned in this season and to all the people who've taken time to message us because Mm -hmm. so many people send us messages. It's great. Like lots of messages, lots of questions, lots of support. Mm -hmm. It is really appreciated. Yeah. And we can answer them all, of course, but we do read every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to try and do today. We're going to try and tackle some of those questions. However, to do this, we need the help of our fearless producer. Please welcome to the show, even though I don't know why I'm welcoming her because she's She's been here the whole time. She's been here the whole time. (laughs) But please welcome her voice, TK Matunda. Say hello. Hi, listeners. I'm happy to be here. So, TK, you were leaving us after this episode, though. Uh, We are sad that you were leaving, but happy you're moving on to bigger and brighter things in the audio world. Honestly, this has been like the cherry on top of my audio experience, and I really hope I get to work with both of you again. I don't think I would have gone through the pandemic without our recording sessions. They've just been... (laughs) They're longer than you think for other reasons. (laughs) And they're great. They're really wonderful. Yeah, it's been just a great experience getting to know both of you as hosts, but also as friends. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's very generous. Everything you said is a lie. No, I'm just joking. But I mean, after you work on this show, there really is nowhere to go but up. So we congratulate you. Before you go, though, let's dive into some of the emails and messages we've gotten over the last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get into it. Okay. Well, this first one is from Ashley Gibson from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and she has a question about treaties. She asks, why are some treaties numbered and what does unseated mean? This is a great question. Okay, let's start with why are some treaties numbered? There are many kinds of treaties. Uh, There are more modern treaties and agreements, and then there are the ones that were created between the 1700s and the early 1900s. The really early ones were between Great Britain, or the Crown, and various First Nations groups, and they were about relationship, both economic and military. Many were formed before Canada was Canada, and they had names like Treaties of Peace and Neutrality or the Robinson and Douglas Treaties. 
The other treaties that were developed later revolved around land, and they were numbered as an ordering system. By this time, approximately around 1871 and beyond, lots of settlers were coming in and Canada was destroying Indigenous sovereignty. The numbered treaties were about settling the Northwest, extinguishing Aboriginal title, and opening up the West for settlement. And so that's why the numbered treaties are only on the prairies, territories, and northern Ontario. Land specified in the treaties would also be considered ceded to the Crown or transferred to the Crown. And the Crown is now the federal government of Canada. In return, Indigenous people were supposed to get compensated, uh, retain sections of land and maintain certain rights, along with a lot of other specific things that could go into an agreement like this. You know, we have covered a lot of what has happened during and since the numbered treaties were signed, and most of it has not been good. The Crown took the land and, for the most part, did not keep those promises. Yes, and these treaties, the numbered ones, are ordered from 1 to 11. The treaty that was signed with Louis Riel and that created Manitoba is considered Treaty 1. 1 through 5 were the first ones. They covered parts of Manitoba, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And interestingly, the text was virtually identical for most of them. It was almost template, boilerplate. They just recycled it. So it was a commemorative medallion, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way given to the Indigenous signatories, which had blank spots for the number and the date. But again, otherwise, they were identical. Number six and seven are a bit different because they were signed in the same year as the Indian Act was formed. Conditions were bad. Treaty six had a clause that required the government of Canada to provide health care to the signing nations in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Many had been decimated by smallpox and the disappearance of the buffalo and things were really desperate on the prairies. It has been called the Medicine Chest Clause. Treaty 7 covers what is now called Southern Alberta, and five separate nations signed this treaty. So it was and is a much disputed treaty because there were so many people involved. 8 through 11 were the last to be signed, and they were done between 1899 and 1921, 22 years after Treaty 7 was signed. They cover parts of the Northwest Territories, Ontario, and Manitoba. Some of the reasons that there's this big time period between number 7 and 8 and 11 is that Indigenous people refused to negotiate with the government. Canada also moved a bit slower because, at first, they didn't think the land was worth anything. But then the gold rush happened, and the government got worried that Indigenous people in the area would fight back if they knew that they were trying to commodify the land. And so they drew up the treaties. That is another difference about the later numbered treaties. They are more about access to natural resources than they are about settlement. So the term unceded means the land was not given with permission. It can mean the land has never been given under treaty and remains in Indigenous hands, or it means that the land was taken by the federal government without permission. Even land that is covered under the treaties, it can be considered unceded by Indigenous folks if the government of Canada has broken the terms of the treaty, which would invalidate Canada's claim to the land. So, Ashley, that is a very short explainer on the number of treaties and the term unceded. Okay, TK, what's next? Okay, this next one is about the live show that we did in January 2020 in Calgary. Remember, there was plane action in 2020. Yeah, I know. And we all went. TK was with oh us. God. We yeah. all went in a plane and we were in Calgary. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, Jen from Calgary remembers it fondly, actually, and she writes, 
I attended your live show in Calgary and loved it. The history you told about the province was so compelling, especially the story about Vivian McMillan. It was so impactful and moving. I wanted to share it with my students, but I can't do it justice like you did. I'm wondering if you could do this teacher a favor and cover it on the podcast so I can share it with them. Thank you, Jen. I love when we get emails from teachers. It's, it's mm-hmm. great. It's exactly what I wanted this podcast to do. So let's help Jen out. Happy to. Okay, so just a warning, this story contains details about sexual assault, so skip ahead if you need to. Okay, so this is a story about a woman named Vivian McMillan. For people who don't know Alberta, Alberta is wild rose country, and the thing about a wild rose is it looks so delicate and beautiful, but it is prickly as hell, and those prickles protect it from being picked and eaten. It's a way of self-preservation, which is what you needed as a woman in the 1930s. Hell, you need that if you're a woman now. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And no one needed this quality more than Vivian McMillan. Vivian grew up in Edson, Alberta, and as the daughter of the mayor, she was always being introduced to prominent people in Alberta in the political world. Little did she know how much her life would be altered when at 17, she would meet the Calgarian lawyer and fifth premier of Alberta, John Brown Lee. He was 47 years old. She was 17. He was 47. One of the first things he said to her was, You'll grow up to be a beautiful woman. So in case you're wondering, we will clarify things for you right off the top. John Brownlee was a creep and a predator. But Vivian didn't know this yet. And when the premier reached out to her to offer her training for a government job, Vivian jumped at the chance. She wanted to be a stenographer. This job was writing transcripts of meetings verbatim. They would use a shorthand written language to do this. With the blessing of her family, which you really needed to have when you were a young woman in the 1930s, Vivian moved to Edmonton to get stenography training and eventually begin her work with the premier. As soon as she got there, the harassment began. Brownlee kept inviting her to his house, made her go for long drives with him, and told her he was madly in love with her. Day by day, he would increase the pressure on her to be with him, even though she was just there for the job. Yeah, remember, this is a teenager he was talking to. One day, he told her that his wife was sick, and Vivian would have to have sex with him because he was scared that if he had sex with his wife, she would become pregnant and die in childbirth. And that would destroy his family. Vivian didn't know what to do and was trapped. She was forced to have sex with John Brownlee that night and for the next three years until she had a nervous breakdown. Unfortunately, as we all know, all too well, this abuse of power over a woman is not an uncommon story, especially at this time in history. It was only one year before Vivian had taken the job with Brownlee that women were declared persons under the law. There was no common thought that sexual harassment existed then, and opinions of the day around sexual assault were that women had to be careful as to not entice men. So when Vivian and her father sued John Brownlee, a sitting premier for seduction, Alberta was shocked. The case went to trial. Vivian would face an all-male jury and tell her side of the story in detail. John Brownlee would describe it as an affair gone wrong, and his lawyers would try to prove that nothing actually happened at all because Vivian never got pregnant. That was a key argument in a lot of assault trials back in the day. If a woman didn't get pregnant, then it didn't happen. Vivian and her father sued Brownlee for seduction, 
which was a thing at the time. Fathers could sue men for seducing their daughters as it was seen as sullying them. This was one of the only ways under the law Vivian would be able to charge Brownlee for years of abuse that she had endured. John Brownlee said Vivian was like a niece, and Vivian said he raped her. John Brownlee said that Vivian was trying to get money out of him, and Vivian said he threatened to kill her. She maintained her story over and over as she was dragged through the newspapers and in the opinion pages. When the verdict came back, almost five hours after deliberation, Vivian braced herself. She knew what an all-male jury would say. But she was wrong. The verdict came back as guilty. Premier John Brownlee was found guilty of seduction. And it was unprecedented. Vivian McMillan had told her truth and was believed. There was, of course, pushback and appeals, but the ruling stood up and John Brownlee resigned in disgrace as premier. When he tried to keep his seat in his riding as an MLA, the following year, he was defeated by a woman. Edith Rogers would win the riding with 1,400 votes. A nice icing on the cake. Vivian would live out the rest of her life in Calgary. She lived a private life, not sharing with anyone that she had stood up to one of Alberta's most powerful men and won. Her story no doubt helped countless women at the time. I just know it did. More after this break. So this is our last email, and it's very short. It is from Garth Baker, and he writes, Hey, love your show. Do Zellers, Garth. <laughs> that, is, <sighs> that is amazing. It's, that it's is, the best one. It's the that best is poetry. One. <laughs> that is poetry, Garth. Garth, you are a poet. <laughs> you know, this is interesting because I see so much about Zellers on Twitter and Instagram. People genuinely seem to miss this department store. Yeah, I've I've noticed this. I definitely have noticed that, you know, every three or four months, someone posts a picture of Zellers of, or like the Zellers Diner on Twitter and it goes viral because... I don't know, because I think <laughs> Zellers is just a, an iconic franchise. Yeah, there is a Zellers parody account on Twitter, and it interacts with other long-gone department stores. So there are many tweets between the Sears parody account and the Zellers parody account, like this one here, where Sears writes, I wonder if we can just jack up the prices and put sales signs everywhere. And Zellers writes back, Jesus, Sears, stop giving away the secrets. What is wrong with you? It mostly looks like they just repost people taking pictures of old Zellers plastic bags. It is amazing that they do last that long, though. Well, that's why we have floating islands of garbage in our oceans. I mean, not only because of Zeller's bags, but um, they're there. Yes. <laughs> anyway, let's get into the history, shall we? So Zeller's was founded by Walter Zeller, who was born in Kitchener, Ontario in 1890. In 1912, he started his first job at Woolworth's department store, another long-gone department store. Um, and he really took to it and learned everything that he could. He is described on the Zeller Family Foundation website as being a short, strong-minded, and very detail-oriented person. 
So this short king went on to open Zeller's Limited in 1928 in London, Ontario. It was a huge store, 7,000 square feet, and 60 women were hired for opening day. They did really well, expanded to 11 other locations, and then he sold all of the stores to an American retailer called Shoot United. The Depression hit shortly after, and then the company he sold the stores to went bankrupt. So he actually bought them back in 1931. From there, the stores just kept expanding across Canada. Eventually, the store changed its name from Zeller to Zeller's, no apostrophe, uh, and became an affordable one-stop shop. In 1955, Walter Zeller retired at the age of 65 and passed away two years later. The thing that really makes Zeller stand out is that they were responsible for a couple of firsts. They had the first car automotive center. They were the first department store to open inside of a mall. And the first to open an in-store restaurant. <laughs> I love how I'm reading it like it's a murder mystery. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> The skillet, which was the first one, that opened in 1960. It was cheap, filling, and people loved it, right? They had a $1.99 breakfast special, which was eggs, sausage, bacon or ham, and toast and coffee. I mean, can't beat that. You cannot can't beat, beat that. that deal. You can't beat that deal. They also had um, those hot chicken or hamburger sandwiches, mm-hmm. you know, some meat between two pieces of bread and like just like gravy and fries on the side. If they dinged the bell right now and said quarantine's over, I would meet you at this restaurant immediately. And let's I think all we go. should start a side hustle. I think we should start packaging Zeller style TV dinners. <laughs> all right. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> You're so not into <laughs> like, silence. I don't think it's the same. <laughs> okay, fine. I feel that people feel the same way about the Ikea restaurant as they did Mm. the Zeller's restaurant. You know, I always see Mm -hmm. more people in the restaurant at Ikea than they are in the store. It's something about that cheap kind of family style. There's something about it. And they have wine at Ikea. Pro tip. Oh, I didn't know that. So Zeller's was hugely popular, but now it is no more. How, like, where did it go? What happened? Tell me about the downfall of Zeller's. Okay, so the stores were doing really well into the mid-70s and then wanted to expand even more. And so they were bought by the Bay, actually, or HBC. HBC thought that having Zellers would broaden their customer base because the Bay was seen as a little more expensive and Zellers was less so. By the 80s, they launched Zeddy. Oh, God, Zeddy. Yes, I remember. Um, Zeddy was this uh, teddy bear mascot that was in all of their commercials. Yeah, he was their mascot. He was also really beloved. And so when HBC bought Kmart in 1998, they turned all the Kmarts into Zellers. And then Zeddy was really everywhere because it just like doubled or tripled the stores. And so were sales still good? I mean, I think what happened to Zellers is what happened to most of the department store chains, which is times changed. You know, people were shopping online more. It was hard to maintain huge retail spaces. Um, So by 2011, HBC sold Zellers to Target, the American store Target, Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. $1.8 billion. And then Target took a lot of the inventory, sold it off, and closed down many of the stores. Most closed in 2013. 
Sellers was going, but one thing Canadians did not want to see disappear was Zeddy. So they decided to see if they could find the bear a new home, and 30,000 people voted on where Zeddy should go. People were seriously invested in Zeddy. I mean, they really cared about the bear, honestly, more than the store, I would say. Yeah, they were very serious. Zeddy found a new home at Camp Trillium. The camp is described as putting fun into the lives of families impacted by childhood cancer since 1984. That's nice. So, so Garth, there you go. We've done Zellers. We did. We did. <laughs> a big thank you to you, Garth, Jen, and Ashley for your letters. Yes, as well as everyone who was so kind to write in with their questions and comments. It's just nice to know we aren't speaking into a void. So it's great. We've yeah, done we Zellers. We've done Zellers. We did the Mounties. We did Expo. Mm-hmm. We did... Gunasatagi. Uh, we did Black Nurses. We did... Uh, uh... Blackface. Well, we didn't do blackface. We just talked about it. Yeah, we didn't um, do like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the show ended is because I accidentally said we did blackface. No, yeah, we did so much this season and we just want to thank everyone who yeah who tuned in and who subscribed, rated, and reviewed. It has been um, a heck of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I hope that, you know, listening to us two goofballs look into some of this history and just mess around and share with you some of the stories that we're really excited to talk about um you know helped you helped you get through this year because making them helped us Mm -hmm. and let me tell you i i got through this year because of this podcast i also got through it because i watched all of the mission impossible series and called it research right and called it research and then i ended up watching the aftermath with Leah Remini about Scientology and you know I should have actually watched that first and then I wouldn't have watched any of the Mission Impossible movies but it's been a journey you know just doing this podcast and then taking in all of this drivel that we watch on a daily basis so it's been great. This show was recorded all across the land we now know as Canada, which is the traditional and current territory of many Indigenous people. And we want to thank all of the folks who gave us their time and contributed to making the podcast. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, I'm Phelan Johnson. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next season. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.